welcome to our second episode of That's Why We Read, a podcast by literacy people for literacy people. I'm having troubles talking today. I apologize. <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by a T-chart. Yay! Uh, we brought up the topic last week uh, in discussion about T-charts and what the role of the T-chart is. Evidently, it's been... Um, brought to some of our attention that um, a T-chart is different from what it really is. So uh, just to be it's clear, really simple, guys. it is really simple. A <laughs> T-chart, it looks like a T. Uh, in the column on the left, you might have pros, and in the column on the right, you might have cons. It's a way of comparing and contrasting two things, um, and that's simple or it might be, as we are discussing today, uh, the column on the left is things we agree with. The column on the right, things we disagree with. So uh, that takes us to our topic of conversation today. We mentioned it briefly in our last podcast, The Knowledge Gap by Natalie Wexler, who is another fantastic journalist who has undertaken the um, responsibility of... Uh, solving all the problems in literacy education, maybe, um, in, a, in a journalistic approach. And um, we have all read her book, and we can all agree that there are things in the book that we absolutely love and agree with, and then other things that we think um, may be missing the mark a bit. So our T-chart today is uh, kind of what we love and don't love about Wexler's The Knowledge Gap. And you bring up a great point. I think that's, isn't that why we read in mm, general? That is why we read. We read, uh, uh, we, I always talk to my students about uh, a book is a conversation with the author. And so um, when you think of it like that, in any conversation, there are going to be things that you agree with and then things that you're like, I don't know that I agree with this and this is why. We don't just disagree with her because she's a journalist or anything. We, we in education, having been in education for a a combined 60 plus years at the, you know, between at this table, there are things that we talked about this last week. That's a very simple solution to a very complex problem. And I don't think that it's the silver bullet that you think it is. But in journalism, what you're supposed to do is get clicks, right? And get people reading your article and get people talking about it. And it does definitely stir the pot and it gets people talking and that's great if you're a journalist but in education I think we're really tired of people stirring the pot instead of getting in there and helping us fix the actual issues or maybe quit putting mandates on teachers that aren't actually helping students and teachers get better and do better at school so that students can truly be helped because that's the ultimate goal so um, who would like to start with what we agree with, what we disagree with. Do we want to go for it? Okay, so um, I tend to be a glass half full person, but I'm going to go ahead and start with something that I I thought was a little short sighted, and that was she talks a lot in the um, throughout the book about this idea of skills versus strategies, mm. and. I, while I agree with her that there are some teachers that use kind of a skill or a strategy of the week um, and they just kind of um, 
they teach it out of context and maybe they're like, this week we're reading this story and we're learning about T charts. This week we're reading this story and we're learning about KWL charts. She is correct in that is not a good reader going to make. It's not that simple. However, to throw out T charts and KWLs and um, graphic organizers in general, the whole point of a graphic organizer is to make plain the thinking going on in your brain. And that's ultimately what we're trying to do when we, um, when we are creating or helping build readers. We're trying to help students learn to think, right? If your book is a conversation, um, if writing is a conversation, then we need to teach stu children, students, people in our community how to have those conversations in a way that that's not full of vitriol or you know um, poor arguments things like that so we want them to um, have time to learn how to sit and think and we talk about this in education a lot build schema in your brain right mm -hmm. the structure um, and so if you think of a graphic organizer I always compare it in my class to like the structure when you're driving by a house that's being built it's the outside structure that's going to hold all of the pieces and the graphic organizer helps us do that. So a KWL is a really simple one. It is often overused, but I'm just going to use it because it's pretty straightforward and simple to describe. But what do you know before you read on this topic? What do you want to know? And then what do you learn? Now, teachers, I, I think, um, and I think this is Wexler's point. She's gone into classrooms and she's seen people use strategies like this where the, the student is over maybe in a group or by themselves, working on a KWL all by themselves. That's not good teaching, and it's what we talked about last week. That's a teacher problem. That's not a strategy graphic organizer problem. You're using that tool wrong. It's like if I'm walking around with a screwdriver trying to put nails in the wall. That's not a screwdriver problem. That's a, te that's the, that's a me problem. I don't know how to use that tool. So that's my first takeaway as I was reading through I was like, I don't think you quite understand the theory behind why teachers use it. And then if it is used, being used inappropriately, obviously students are not learning using it because the person's not using the tool correctly. But I really hope that we don't get into a world where we just think we don't need graphic organizers. All of my science, math, history teachers used Cornell Notes. KWLs, Venn diagrams, T-charts. Like, we used to compare, you know, this war to this war, or this battle to this battle, or this person to this person, or this process in science to this process. I don't know why, I just think that we need to make sure that teachers continue to use strategies, but in an appropriate and research-based way, and a way that helps students to build that schema. So, well, that's and my I, first takeaway. I, I Building on that point, you know, on on page 57, she says that it, it makes sense to teach strategies as a means of helping students understand a particular difficult text, but not to spend a lot of time on them. It shouldn't be daily practice. But like you said, it helps graphic organizers or strategies help students clarify their thinking. Mm -hmm. Well, as soon as she says that, then she goes into, is it Mrs. Maisie? Is that how you... You would say her last name, M-A-S-I? I thought so. it's either that or <laughs> names don't follow phonetic rules. So right. <laughs> unless we talk to her particularly, I was either, either that or it's Mossy, and I don't know which one. So, But she praises 
or seems to praise that teacher for using strategies. Yeah. After she has said that strategies aren't something that teachers should really spend some time on. So, and I noticed a lot of contradictory information in her okay. book too. So yeah, on that topic, I think, and hopefully the point she's trying to make, and this is what we want to bring about if you're reading this book, and we, and you know, we hope that you do take it in, and you, you know, it's what I always tell my students: you take the part that's good and nourishing, and you spit out the parts that you're like, that's not, um, that doesn't actually. The science doesn't back that up. The research doesn't back that up. Um, but yeah, I I agree. There were parts where I'm like, well, that is a, just so you know. There were several times I was like, that's a KWL chart. Yeah, that's a coral note thing. That is like I'm it's I can see all strategy. these. That's a comprehension strategy. Um, so that you know, I don't think you understand that teacher's just not using it correctly. That's, that doesn't mean, and I tell people, I have to drive this home to my students all the time. You can't just go, hey, boys and girls, this is a KWL chart. K stands for what you know, what you want to know, what you learn, and then turn them loose. Right. That's not how it works. You're supposed to use it like a tool, just like a chef would use a knife or a, a, you know, a carpenter would use a hammer. You're using it constantly, all the time. You're modeling. You're, you're, you, know, you do it as a whole group. They do it in small groups. Like it, and you have to scaffold them to ultimately doing a KWL by themselves. And what's great about a graphic organizer at the end of the day is students will stop using it when they don't need it anymore. Right. A KWL is done in your brain, whether you realize it or not. When I read this book, I looked at the title and I was like, oh, I'm already a big fan of nonfiction and using that in my class. Mm -hmm. This is something that I think I would really enjoy reading and so I'm already kind of opening up that file thinking about all the things I know about content area literacy and all those things and then as I'm going through I'm looking at the titles of the sections and going oh okay so what do I think I'm going to learn here even subconsciously and then at the end we're having a conversation or I'm talking to my friends about it what did I learn from this and then we're I'm getting feedback and I'm thinking oh I didn't think about it like that and like you use a KWL just as part of being a strong reader and I think when it's taught in that context and used in that context, it's really helpful for students. And that was the ultimate goal of a graphic organizer. strategies we need to help us process this information and, and construct meaning out of it. Well, I mean, we did it for this episode. We used a T-chart to guide our conversation about this text. If not, we would just be one-off, popping off about things that we talked about, and we wouldn't be actually sitting and thinking logically about, okay, what were the things that I agreed with? What were the things that I disagreed with? Are there any patterns there? Again, I loved, my professor used to talk about graphic organizers makes thinking visible mm -hmm. and you're like that's that's yes. the goal of it and it used well it's a great strategy there's tons of research to back it up and it should be used just like we don't use letter of the week any or letter of the week anymore or that's not a common practice I agree I don't and 
just because my curriculum suggested that every week I use a different graphic graphic organizer, I mean, for me personally, I didn't always use the, the strategy they told me to use that right. week. I was like, hey, my kids need more practice on KWL. We're going to keep using KWL for three weeks, or we're going to use... And sometimes I didn't use any strategy. We just, you know, we did something else. We did a hands-on activity or... It just depends on, again, what I needed to know as the teacher was that was available for me as an option. Thank you for that suggestion, curriculum. Yes. I may not be using that. And you can see my students need. when it will come in handy. When this is the one that you're going to leave, this is exactly what we need at this point in time and pull it and use it then. Yeah. Well, and it, and it depends on the students who are sitting in front of you, too, as mm -hmm. to what, what you're going to be using and what you're going to expose them to. I mean, mm -hmm. if they're not... If they're not ready for a KWL chart, then maybe you do something different or a T chart, you use something different. Well, we talked about this. One of my students said, my student, she had planned for a Venn diagram in one of her lessons, and she's like, she couldn't give me anything. Like, whenever I was talking to her, I was like, what do I put? And I was like, okay, let me tell you how you do that. You get three by five cards or four by six cards, and you write things that you want her to think about from the text. And you scaffold her, and I said, and you lay them out, and I said, if you can use pictures or icons or whatever, and I said, and if you're comparing toads to frogs or whatever it is that you're doing in your lesson, I said, pull up and say, okay, this, an this you know, animal lives, or this amphibian lives, you know, on the land and on, you know, in, in the water. And I said, and then you let her place it where? And, and she goes, well, what if she can't do that? I was like, good question. Open up the book where it said that. <laughs> And I said, good readers, go back to the text. And I, I would show her, how, how could you, I, sometimes I just say, how, would you, how, how could we find that out? She'd be like, well, we could read again. You are correct. <laughs> let's go back and let's find that. You know, I said, so then guess what? You do that two or three times, she, she won't need you to write those on cards anymore or the class won't need it anymore. They will get the idea and their brain will start to actually do that thing. So again, and this is why we move from skill or strategy to skill. The idea is is that you use a Venn diagram so that students naturally compare and contrast in their own brain, see what things have in common. Automatically. Automatically. You're trying to get them to do it. And what's funny is they already do it, whether they realize it or not. We used to talk about, because she talks about this too, the seven comprehension strategies Unless, that we should just yep. get rid of. And I was like, so she talks about how, you know, inferencing, you can't just teach inferencing. I'm like, students infer every single day. And one of the ways I used to introduce this was I would walk into my classroom when I knew that they were getting ready for class, and I would take my book, I would huff, walk in the classroom, slam the door, and throw my book on my desk. And every single one of my friends would snap around. They knew you were mad. And I said, what can you infer from <laughs> what just happened? And they're like, you're mad. And I'm like, all right, why do you think I'm mad? And they would be like, well, I heard you huff, and the door slams, and you slam the book. I've never seen you do this in the world, Ms. Ramsey. What's the matter? And I'm like, nothing's the matter, but I wanted you to understand you're inferring all the time. When your friend's not smiling, when, you're, they're not when you think they're not talking to you, when you know, your mom and dad are you know, whispering, like you're inferring at all times. That's what good readers do. So we're going to look for opportunities to become metacognitive about our time today reading and inferring and reading between the lines. And then we can have that conversation, which here's the thing, and I said this last week with Kilpatrick's work. I'm like, every piece of research is just looking at a strong reader and going, what is it that they do? The seven comprehension strategies came from the idea that 
This is what good readers are already doing. I and, I, and I'll say what I always say, you can't reverse engineer that. But we're trying to do it now. Like, oh, well, it, good readers have a, lot, a wealth of background knowledge. We'll just give them all the knowledge in the world, and then they'll be good readers. No, they won't, because that's not the only piece of the problem. There are so many. Here's the thing. I can talk about all these math, science, history concepts, but if they don't, if they're not motivated to care about those mm-hmm. things because a teacher didn't bring that motivation to the table and explain to them why it's important, if, if it's not important to their culture and important in their world, like they're so... You mean they're not making connections? Right, they're not making connections. And I was like, you have to talk to them. Hey, strong readers make connections. And she uses, I like that you said that because one of the things that I disagreed with, she was talking about, there was a lesson where a teacher was having the students make connections about strong women. And she said they were talking about everything from like, I think it was like a YouTube star and they weren't making great connections. And I said, that's a teacher problem Mm -hmm. because I tell my students all the time, I don't want you to make a connection randomly. We're going to talk about what good connections look like. They are connected to the text. So why are you bringing up that YouTube star? If she connects to the Harriet Tubman text we're reading, awesome. Let, tell me how that works. But most of the time they're like, oh, that doesn't make a connection. I'm like, you're right. Okay, so let's guide our thinking back. Because they are, you know, 12 years old. They do want to talk about what they were doing last night. As a teacher, it's my job to guide them back right. to the place where they're making stronger connections. And that is that is a, a conversation, and it's it's not simple, and it's not easy, and it's not prescribed. Like, the teacher has to have the practice, the knowledge. I I always tell my students it's like pulling a rope out of a well. Like, Mm -hmm. you're having to pull things out of students. If not, they will just sit there like a lump on a log until they get engaged. And so that's your job. Find what will motivate them and engage them. And you know what helps engage them? Get a T-chart up there and start asking them to compare and contrast things. They'll start throwing things up there, and they'll be like, no, actually, that's we used to do this with the little kids with um, Abraham Lincoln and George Washington on President's Day, and it was kind of a, you know, a very basic thing, but they started to go, oh, you know, I mean, they would name everything from, like, he was born in, you know, uh, he was wealthy when he was born. He was poor when he was, I mean, they were making all sorts of connections about, like, that's probably, his mom died, and you know, his, you know, like they were, and I was like, oh, wow. Like they started to have whole conversations that I didn't have to lead anymore. So I'm like, that's what a, a good graphic organizer can do. Right. It can help you have those conversations. So. Something else that I agreed with her about was the fact that science and history are are more geared toward middle school and high school than they are elementary school these days. And I think if she would have gone back and thought about why that is, I mean, she mentions it. She talks around it. She says that up to a quarter of the school year spent preparing for tests, taking practice tests and taking benchmark tests Mm -hmm. designed to predict performance at the end of the year. Well, those end of the year tests are always reading and math. Yeah. Why why wouldn't teachers focus on yeah. reading and math? If my job depends on right. it, if it, my performance evaluation reviews depend on reading and math, 
why wouldn't I, I focus there? But I think what she, I think the point that she's missing is science and, and history are reading, mm -hmm. and they can be math. Mm -hmm. So you can incorporate those nonfiction texts into your classroom without having a set curriculum, so to speak. Yeah. And the things that, that my kids in Cherokee and Adair County might want to read about, the history they might want to read about, or the science they might read about, might be different than what your kids in Owasso might want to read about or talk about. So I like the idea that there is no national curriculum at this point because I'm able to to take in the interests of my kids, which hopefully will keep them more motivated and more engaged. Yeah, and I think we talk we talk a lot about this when we're training teachers. Like, why are why do basal readers exist? Like, if students would rather read what they're interested in, why do they exist? And I'm like, because when you're a first year teacher, you don't you don't know all the books yet. So, a, a, a we're not talking about not having any curriculum. We're just right. saying that you do need a scope and sequence. You do need to understand your, sta your, your state standards or if you're in the state that uses Common Core. You need to understand those standards. You need to have a curriculum to guide you, but that curriculum is not going to fix all the problems. And I think, you know, anytime we tell humans like, hey, if you just take this pill, it'll fix everything. It, they, they're like, okay, I'm gonna take that pill and it's gonna fix everything. You're like, that. we don't need to tell teachers again hey, here's this special, because we've done this for years. Whole language, phonics, um, you know, even balanced literacy. Now it's, you know, core knowledge. You're like, it'll fix it. It will not it will fix not. it. Because anytime you lean too far into one area, you are missing something in another. The idea is, is that we're supposed to teach more. And, and she, she brings this up, I think, in... I want to say she was talking in page on page let me double check 18 but she was talking about how um we teachers and i i do agree with this this is one thing i agree with she talks about how teachers don't believe that science and science and history are developmentally appropriate for young children and i was like i think this is true when i go into classrooms i don't see lots of teachers using nonfiction with their students and they think they immediately go, it's boring, they don't want to do it, it's too hard. And I'm like, that's not true. You do have a misconception there. And so I loved that she pointed out in the book that we've got teachers that don't believe that their children are capable of having conversations as scientists or historians or about those subjects. And I'm like, you are spot on. I absolutely agree with that. And I want to see more conversations in the schools happen. But the thing is, is that we don't need to take that outside the classroom. The elementary teacher teaches all of those subjects. And you're right. We, take, we talk about this to our students all the time. You need, as a math teacher or a history teacher or a social studies teacher, you're constantly teaching vocabulary, right. one of the five non-negotiables. You're constantly teaching then the etymology of words in those, in those subjects. I mean, here's the thing. The best place to get etymology of words is science, science. and history. Yes. Like, like that's the best place to start that. So why would we not take a a view where reading reading is just the um, it's the way of thinking about all content, and so that's the thing that we want to make sure doesn't happen is 
yes, we think there should be more content in the classrooms, more science, more history. Teachers need to understand that it's not too hard for their children to understand. Um, but you need, you know, a graphic organizer or learn how to infer and read between the lines when you're reading that science text or that history text or that math, you know, math lesson. So, anyway. Anything else anybody agrees with? Um, what was it that she... I will say while, while you're looking that up, one of the things that I loved at the end of the toward the end of the book, starting in, at like page um, two nineteen, she talks about writing, and mm -hmm. I I just love the section because I have always hated the the drive toward personal narrative and writing. I watched my students struggle constantly because they were like, I don't know what to write about, and Although personal narrative has a place, I don't think we should get rid of it. Again, keep everything in balance. I think including writing about history and science allows students who, who maybe haven't plumbed the depths of their personal self to have conversations about a, a subject. Whereas right now, what we have is a lot of students that are like, this, these are my feelings. And this is my, these are my thoughts. And what happens is, and we know this from, you know, getting, we've all worked with a friend, not a friend, but a colleague where you're like, you don't know basic writing skills, like, but they know how to talk about themselves or share their own feelings or whatever. And you're like, yes, I need you to write a report. I need you to write, and our own students, write a reflection about phonemic awareness, not what you think about it. No. What it is, how can you help a student who's struggling with this particular, um, this particular part of phonemic awareness? And they'll be like, I really like when my teacher, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't care what you like. <laughs> like, that's not the point of this reflection. Now, I care about you as a person, and I'm glad that you liked it, but, and we, we've talked about this, when we interview students when they come to the College of Ed, what do they always say? We'll say, tell me about an effective teacher. And without a doubt, they all go, Mrs. Smith made me feel so loved. And I'm like, that doesn't make Mrs. Smith effective. <laughs> That's great. She should do that because she's a teacher. But what makes her effective, and we, we even added words like, what instructional strategies did she use? What lessons did she plan for you? And it's like they don't even connect that the fact that they felt competent in math had anything to do with the way Mr. Brown planned his lessons. They don't right. connect that. And I'm like, and that is a travesty, that when people come into education, they don't think that the actual, the brain power and the understanding of cognitive, you know, your cognitive abilities and your instructional strategies have nothing to do with the fact that you felt competent in that subject. That is a direct correlation to why you felt competent. It's not because you felt loved. No. You can feel loved by a teacher and still not think that you're capable, a capable mathematician or good at understanding history or science. You're like, guys, we and, have got And you can't be loved by a teacher but not have learned anything by yeah. the end of the year. Yeah, absolutely. And what's hard, and I, I used to tell this to myself as an elementary teacher, I was like... <clears throat> 
I want this child to feel loved. I do. Yes. That is absolutely the understood goal, but it's almost like saying, I want to be a good human. Yes, they need to know that I care about them and all of those things. But if they leave my class and go to a, a teacher who doesn't care about them, and I didn't equip them with any skills, any any knowledge to make sure that they felt secure going out into the world or to the next classroom, then I have done them a disservice. It's like raising our own kids. You know, they talk about helicopter parents or, or parents that are like they overly coddled this child. What, you know, the first time my sister sent my nephew into a store to buy something by himself, like he came out and he's like fist pumping. Like I did it. <laughs> and I'm like, she had to trust that something bad could happen as she let him go out of her sight into that yes. store. And you're like, but she, she, she had modeled it for him. She told him what he was going to do. She had equipped him with the knowledge of how to pay and what happened if this happened. And he went in and he did it. And when he came out, he felt empowered. a sense of, he, yes, empowered in self-efficacy. And we are stealing that from our students when we don't, we don't give them great instructional experiences. When we just are like, don't worry, I'll I'll take away half the questions so you feel like you're capable. I'll take away, you know, I won't make you do the hard things. I'm like, we need to be there with them doing the hard things and helping them know you're capable of doing this. So yeah, I think. Well, and as an as a as a bad example of that, when yeah. she's talking about the Michaela School in England, the charter school. Oh yeah. Where you know everybody's there. She. She's talking about one of the reading clubs that she observes, um, and 30 or so students, she says, 30 or so students sat at rows of desks following along as the teacher read from Jane Eyre. Okay, I've read Jane Eyre many, many times, and I enjoyed Jane Eyre. Mm -hmm. But the, the description of what these kids were doing as they're reading Jane Eyre I don't. I don't really call that reading. She says not they were well. Um, here's what it says. So the situation in the book that they're reading seemed remote, and much of the vocabulary and syntax were archaic. But there was no chatting or fidgeting. The students used clear plastic rulers to keep their place in the text and never lifted their eyes from the page. This practice, used across the curriculum at Michaela, helps students develop fluency and familiarizes them with texts too complex for them to read independently. How is sitting at a desk, not raising your eyes, not discussing, mm -hmm. not asking questions, are they really interacting with that text or are they They're just following, along with, following along with a ruler? I wonder if it's kind of, I, I would want to ask her more questions. I'm like, I think maybe there's a part of this that you're leaving out or a point that you're trying to make that you aren't fully communicating to the reader. Because, for example, when one of the ways we help students build fluency is to give them a book on tape and then give them the book and have them follow along right. so that they can be exposed to words or the way words are pronounced or things like that. So that is a strategy we use right. for fluency. However, I wouldn't want anybody to leave this text thinking that's the way you run a classroom or discuss Jane Eyre. Now, what's great is she... There is no discussion. No discussion. <laughs> yeah, or that's how you, you um, 
Because here's the other side. I've seen, you've gone into classrooms where teachers are teaching, like, you know, Romeo and Juliet, and the only people interested are the people who are eventually going to get English degrees. Mm -hmm. And the rest of the kids are just, like, flipping their pencils, and they're like, whatever, just tell me how I can cheat off my friend Fred to answer the ten questions. And you're like, okay, so there's also that extreme. So you're like, okay, somewhere in the middle of this, yes, there might be times where... Um, I used to do this where one day we would follow along with the chapter with a, a, a reader who had a theatrical background, and then the next one we would read parts aloud together, or I would read aloud, or they, you know, someone would volunteer to read, you know, paragraphs or whatever it is. I think you have to vary your instructional practices I agree with so that. that so that students can every student can get the most out of the text. So. I would be like, that's great. That probably did build fluency and expose them to a text that they wouldn't have been able to read on their own. However, it does seem a little robotic and not realistic. And here's the other thing I would say. That's great for that specific school. Try telling that to a person who is teaching, you know, in XYZ area who has XYZ students. Right. It's not... It's kind of like, I, you know, my background is I taught at a private school, and I realized very quickly when I was working with some of my students who were teaching in urban areas, some of my pie in the sky, my kids all came from homes where their parents read to them, and, you know, every single kid, you know, got the, got the prize at the, you know, summer reading library, whatever. You're like, those kids could have conversations about books because they weren't worried about food or whether they were going to be traumatized by something at home that night or they weren't moving to another place that night because they couldn't afford the rent or whatever. They had the cognitive margin to have those discussions. So teachers are in different areas. That's another thing. And just saddling one by saying, like, you're going to have to teach Jane Eyre by reading like a queer ruler. I I mean, she might try it, but good luck. You've got some skills you have to build up to. Right. Again, which is why you teach teachers theory about what exactly. it is they're supposed to understand about understand humans and children's development so that the, exactly so you're like that i would just say i think you've left something out of that, that yes. conversation with that with that particular school um and and maybe that's because someone who doesn't know the theory behind teaching the reasons why we do what we do yeah um you know when we talked about this, I, I said um, I have been in several situations with family members where I've been in hospitals, and I have scathing oh, yes. reviews of, yes. of many doctors. They are not often my favorite people, and that is because I have met some real knotheads, <laughs> and I've met some not great nurses, mm-hmm. and I've seen some not great practices. Does that mean that every hospital in America needs to be revised based on right. my theory of what I've seen in these five hospitals? Not necessarily. Now, do d- does that mean that nothing needs to happen? No, and that's I, that, that's that is why we read. We want to understand where are some of our holes, and we also want to understand like we're going to push back on this part because this is going to put us into another ditch. Mm-hmm. Um, because as humans, we always want to we want to know what's the ultimate answer. Yes, like what's the if, if every, you know, if every teacher had this training, they would all be wonderful. And I'm like, no, they would not. Like, it's not, it's not that simple. Humans are a little more complicated than that. But, yeah, we can't, I mean, let's just, but education is a, it's a place to get the pot stirring because 
I mean, it's there's not people are passionate about their cho- their kids and what they're learning. They are often horrified at some of the situations that they see in schools, as they should be. And um, then they say, let's make this a national imperative to change all of these things. And you're like, oh, my Lord, guys. Well, and that's that's the difference is that school is not a business. Educating children is not a business. And too often we see people who are successful business people trying to solve the problems of education that can't be solved through a business model or mm-hmm. not even just by throwing money at it all the time. I mean, yeah. we there's so much that influences education and what happens in the classroom that we can't control. Yeah, that, absolutely. You know, so there again, I mean, I think you've already said it, Sarah, is that there's just it's not an easy fix because we have too many variables that pop around and mm-hmm. change from region to region, you know, within a county in the state, mm-hmm. across the state, or across the country, you know. And we're not saying, and I hope we're being clear with this, we're not saying that there's no answer. We're Absolutely. not saying like, oh, Absolutely. well, then everybody's so different, so just, yes. you know, no. there's nothing that can be done. What we're saying is, is that if you, if you fully, tr- if you, train a teacher well, send them out, and then explain to them, you are so responsible for growing mm-hmm. and developing mm-hmm. and getting um, and getting buy-in from your parents and as best you can and, you know, creating relationships with constituents, or not constituents, but stakeholders and things like that. All of those things will help you build a better Absolutely. school. And you worry about you and your school. Absolutely. And then... These people are here worried about them and their school. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, those types of things. Instead of just saying, like, okay, guys, don't worry. She's got the answer, and we're all just going to do exactly what she says. I'm like, guys, that's a, that's a blind leading the blind mm-hmm. there situation. Like, let's not, let's not lean so far into that that we end up in another situation, which has caused – I mean, what I always think is funny is I was like, you know what? There's not history teachers have – history professors having this conversation with them. No, no. It's always, it's always reading professors. You're like there, – I mean, there's a whole – it's called the reading wars. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like, Why? Because ultimately, reading is thinking. And so what we're fighting over is the ability to train teachers, to, to train children to think. And that is, you're dealing with the brain. And there's so many variables there that you can't just simply do this. Although, I, and I'll say this again, I think her point about putting more history and science into the schools is great. And it should be done. And it will help build background knowledge for students. And it will help increase their vocabulary and all of those things. I think that's a great idea. And I do love, she talks about reading. What's funny is I was reading an article that she wrote just this morning. And she talks about, you know, teachers should read, and like it was a new thing, teachers should read books that are more complicated to what? children out loud so they can. And I was like, that's called a read aloud, woman. And we do it. <laughs> Now, I will say, I think some teachers, and I get on to my students about this, they pick the most fun or the, the newest mm-hmm. book. And I'm like, you need to pick books more strategically based yes. on vocabulary and interest of the children and the place you live in and those types of things. Don't just, I saw it on TikTok or, you know, my favorite blogger <laughs> reads this book. I'm like, pick some classics. Pick some things that are hard to push through because think about how the students will 
Um, I, for example, we used to read a lot of Simon Weaver, and I mean, whoo, talk about dry. It is a dry book. But when my students got finished, they felt accomplished. They were like, that was a hard book, and we did it. And I was like, yes. Are they probably going to put it on their bookshelf and read it to their kids when they grow up? Probably not, but they felt empowered, mm-hmm. as you said, to read a lot. Ingrid and I were talking read. yesterday about we were doing professional development at Grandview, and one of the books that I read to my group of teachers was yeah. Amos and Boris, okay, which is yeah. about the mouse and the whale who become friends. It was yeah. published in 1971, yeah, and it was using words like phos- the phosphorescent sea and the luminous Ooh. sky and you know, the, the great, conversations. great big words. Yeah. And so I agree with her when she says that textbooks are getting simpler. Children's yep. books are getting simpler. We're not seeing the same yeah. high-level vocabulary that that we probably had growing mm-hmm. up. And I think that's I think that does a disservice that's to our shame. kids. We used to say here in Oklahoma, there's a lot of teachers that use great expectations. And the number one thing that they, you know, start you off with is um, – Basically, you have to believe that all children can learn. And I think that is something that I, I, I do see lacking in our schools often is teachers, when teachers feel sorry for kids because their, life, their lives are hard, they, their first reaction is often to pull back on their academics mm-hmm. and go, I'm going to make this make easier them work hard on today. you. And I'm like, you're doing them more harm than good. Now, I'm not talking about... There aren't some times where you have to, you know, adjust the homework or help them or come up with different strategies for them. But if you don't push them, they don't learn to feel accomplishment, and that's what a human needs to feel. They need to feel that they're capable. And so help them feel capable. Helping them feel capable isn't reducing their their work. In fact, I, there's been research on that where kids, you can tell kids they're smart all day long, and if they're not successful at their academic work, they know they're not successful, right. and they don't believe you. Right. So now, now we're in this weird relationship where you keep going, baby, you're so, you're so wonderful. You can be anything you want to be. And they're like, no, I can't. I'm not <laughs> stupid. Like, I can't do that. Instead, let's say, you still need to work on this. How can I help you? What strategies can we come up with? What books can we read? You know, can we find books on tape for you on this subject? Or like, there's lots of things that teachers can offer um, and help students grow in that way. So, yeah. I love I do love her point about we are we are simplifying things to the point where students don't have the background knowledge to be able to have some of the conversations they need to have. Um, and so again, that's why I much of this book I love and she makes great points. So we're getting close to the end of our time today. Is there anything you ladies would any last minute comment you would like to say for today's discussion? It looks like this one's gonna go for maybe one more. <laughs> One more week. We, we may not be finished here. Yeah. I just think, I just take encouragement from the idea that, um, uh, you know, we just finished with read aloud. I think, and you just talked about a great book that you, that had so many great words. I think as a teacher, start to make a list of really great read aloud picture books, chapter mm-hmm. books that you can start to, um, and I know teachers are so pressed for time that often they're like, okay, whatever, you know, whatever donations we can get or whatever. But start, even if it's just like one book a month, like just add one great chapter book or picture book that you're like, I'm going to read this book aloud to my students. It has great vocabulary. 
Um, and often you can Google those types of things. Teachers are out there making lists of really great books that have great vocabulary in them. And one of my tips is I go listen to a book, especially if it's a picture book. I go to YouTube. Someone has read it aloud. And I will see if it's really great before I buy it. Yes. I'll listen to it being read. Does mm-hmm. it have good vocabulary? Does it have, you know, a rhyme pattern if I'm working with young children? Like, what does it have? Is it interesting? Can we have conversations about it? Um, and ask yourself, yes, there is a time for funny books and, and, and books that are just engaging based on wordplay or things like that. And there's a time for some really great word, quality, quality <laughs> literature and, te- and, and even picture books that have great vocabulary, and that expands their knowledge, you know. And so I think just starting to add those books, just one at a time. You know, don't, don't try to get, you know, 50 of them. Just get one a month, and you'll be surprised, because in a couple of years, you know, five years, you'll have 60 great read-alouds right. that you can read to your kids. Well, and, and I wouldn't limit my read-alouds to just my elementary kids. I oh, used yeah. to read aloud to my high school students all the time. And kids' and books, and they love it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely love it. And you'd be surprised the number of kids that don't know. I mean, I read aloud to my college students, and they were like, I did not know that was a word. Yeah. <laughs> and they'll just kind of giggle, and I'm like, listen, how many times have I read books that I'm right. like, I did not know that was a word? So you can share that experience and help them understand. That's what we're trying to do with our own students, is show them, like, this is why we read, because we learn more we words. Learn something. You know, so um, it helps us to, un- to understand Ingrid, anything you would like to add? Um, I was just thinking as Sarah was talking about that, I know so many teachers who complain because they don't feel like they have time to read aloud to their kids because they are so bound to this curriculum and then this one and then this one and then this one that it takes up all their time, you know, just trying to follow those, mm-hmm. um, which obviously is concerning and that could be an entirely different topic, but Be, be a rebel. Be a rebel. Just be and, like, we're not doing that And be today. creative. <laughs> be creative. Mm-hmm. You know, you can find the time. Well, and you don't have to read a whole book in That's one right. sitting. You right. can you can read five, for five minutes before class. You can read before they go to the restroom. or yep. you Come back in from come recess. Back in from that recess. Was my favorite. Oh, like, I loved that. Yeah. We turned the lights off, wait for the stragglers to come back from the bathroom, and we read we read a chapter. And what's great is... Most, I timed it. Most of the time, it took like eight minutes to read a chapter or ten minutes. It didn't take as long as I thought. My fourth grade teacher, Mrs. Webb, read yeah. Trumpet of the Swans to us that way. Okay. And it is Get one of book, my guys. favorite That's books. That's a good recommendation. It's an excellent book. Excellent. I read it aloud to my kids. They loved it. I still remember it, and that was yeah. however many years ago. Yeah, great book. Thank you for tuning in today, and we will see you next week. Read some good books for us. Mm-hmm.